Welcome to the Exponential Podcast. My name is Peyton Jones, and as Exponential's content director, I'll be your guide through the curation of the world's largest multiplication library of resources and training. We currently have four shows running Monday through Thursday, each with a different thrust towards accelerating multiplication. On Monday, join us for Frontlines, tackling current issues facing pastors and planners. On Tuesday, tune in for Biblically Speaking, Theological Foundations for Transformative Race Conversations. On Wednesdays, Ralph Moorhead's Practical Multiplication, A Pastor's Guide to Accelerating Multiplication. And lastly, Candid Conversations is on Thursday, Unpacking Definitions of Diversity. Be sure to catch them all as they will serve as equipping companions on your discipleship journey towards multiplication. Today, we'll be catching up with Todd Wilson and Ephraim Smith on Candid Conversations. The Candid Conversation Show is intended to help leaders engage in conversations about diversity in a healthy way. Each show focuses on a topic and helps participants unpack what that topic is, why it's divisive, and what can be done to promote both change and unity. Let's join Todd and his co-host for today's episode of Candid Conversations. A lot of times when we people talk about racial reconciliation, I think they take on, you know, a posture of by any means necessary. But that's not the posture that we can take as Christians, mm. because the problem is, is that we have this thing called the Bible. Yeah. And the Bible <laughs> gives us bumper reels, yeah. right, that you got to stay between the lines. You got to color between the lines. So I like to say it's not by any means necessary. It's really by all possible means. Mm. And what are those possible means? I think that God has given us those in, in his scripture. Wow. Um, You talk about Paul in here. Why him? Yeah, I think Paul gives us a unique perspective, right? As one who is dealing, specifically in Philemon, who's dealing with racial tension, racial injustice. We got to remember the apostle Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles. He was an ethnic Jew as a missionary to Gentile believers. And it just wasn't one Gentile, it was multiple. So he was very fluent in navigating through racial issues, cultural issues, racial things. I think Philemon is a manifestation of having to navigate through this type of tension. Now, it may not be specifically racial in that context, but it's about reconciliation. And Paul is, as one, is on the outside. Because a lot of times when you're dealing with injustices or Mm -hmm. tensions, you either deal with the oppressed and the oppressor or, you know, the perceived oppressed mm. and the perceived oppressor. But a lot of times what we lose is that third position, the one of an advocate. And I think Paul comes in and he's that one on the outside looking in is that, and he recognizes that either I can be an advocate or I can be an aggravator. And I think a lot of times when people, the you and I, as we're yeah. looking on the outside and looking at what we perceive to be as injustice, that we can either become an advocate or we can just stir it up and become more of an aggravator. Hmm. Do you see yourself as an advocate? Like I do. I don't answer your question for you. Do you see yourself as that? Yeah, I mean, we had to. We've, mm. I've had to, and part of it is because of my own journey, yeah. you know, in my own story, and I've had to kind of wrestle through that in my own, in my own tension. But also, when when you think about this idea of the context that we're mm. in, I talk about this, and I just remember just being um, at the election you know, during the elections, and and it was like when President Trump was elected, and I just would never forget this idea, and I was mm. just like, this is happening, and on and in, in pastoring a church that. There's people at our church who voted for President Trump. Yeah. But then there's people at our church that think if you voted for President Trump, you're the devil. Right. And so there's this tension that wow. we have. And I was just like, man, we need to talk. 
We need to come to the table and we got to stop being so undivided because the Bible says that we we are advocates. We are ambassadors. Mm. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation and our appeal and our message is be reconciled. Mm. And so I don't think Christians have any other choice in but to be a reconciler, an advocate for reconciliation. Now, in doing that, I'm not saying that we don't address real issues. We have to address real issues. But in addressing those real issues, we must have the goal of reconciliation. Anything else, I think, is unbiblical. What do you say to people, Tahani, who go, I am tired of talking about this issue of race? Um, they are fatigued over it. Mm-hmm. You talked about awareness in the book. They're, they're aware, but they are aware of their own personal limitations on this. What do you say to folks who are just tired of it? I'd I, I say I understand. Hmm. I get it. Really? Oh, 100%. Okay. Just think about it. You know, if you have brought up a, a, a something continually hmm. over and over and over again, yeah. and you felt like there was no change, that took place after doing that. Or if you're someone who's constantly been accused of something over and yeah. over and over again and you change, but then no one is feeling like you've mm. done enough. That's draining. Yeah. That makes you sad. That makes you angry. There's hurt. There's yeah. a ton of that that's in there. And the, the, the fact of the matter is both can be true, equally true. But the question is not whether or not we're tired or fatigued right. or any of that. That's not the question. You know, Paul said he was poured out like a drink offering. Like he, mm. he ran his race. So it's, fatigue is not, should not be our North Star. It should not be the thing that drives or not drives, mm. whether we're tired or not tired. Like, are we tired of talking about sin? <laughs> right. We've been since the beginning. <laughs> the, 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 yeah. you know, since Adam, we have not figured it out. Mm. So are we, are we done? Are we, should yeah. we stop talking about No. So this is an application of our human hearts, is that it's a sin issue that is manifesting itself in this way. And I think that as long as we are human, we are going to have to talk about the things that divide us. And for Americans, race is one of the top three. I'll put you on the spot because, you you know, you're here at the North American Mission Board and one of their vice presidents. Where do you see the church going, this issue of race, next five, ten years? Is that a fair question? Yeah, I mean, I think that we're going to have to address it. You do? You know, I mean, you know, primarily if we're going to be effective specifically in urban context. What if we don't want to address it, though? The hot I, think I, mean. we, I think it's a gospel issue. And uh. the reason why is that we have to address the issues that our country is facing. The mm-hmm. polarization that's going on in our country is getting more and more polarized. Wow. And if we don't come with a solution, then we miss it. And going back, that's what I was saying. Paul was seeing this in Rome. He was seeing these churches, mm. Jews and Gentiles separating, can't worship together, different sanctuaries, different living. He was just like, I want to, I want for you guys to partner with me because I want to go to Spain, but I can't even ask you guys to partner with me because wow. you're so divided. And because you're so divided, the issue is really a gospel issue. So he spends 11 chapters just showing this is a gospel issue. Yeah. And then he gives us the famous, therefore, Present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, wow. acceptable, pleasing to God. I really believe he's talking to Jews and Gentiles who can't get along. Hmm. Churches, godly people on both sides, for some reason, are not able to overcome this ethnic tension and the ethnic cultural wow. things. And it's like, let's address it. But you see what I'm saying? It's real easy for us to kind of overlook it. Let's just imagine. Imagine in this way. 
Let's just say for five years, all the current believers got kicked out hmm. of, of America. Yeah. And let's just say that God was supernaturally through the gospel started saving Muslims. Okay. Right? Five years later, we are let back in. And now it's mainly God has still doing his thing. There's tons of Christians, but they're Muslims. Mm. And now they're praying a certain way. They're doing a certain things. Us mm. as American Christians come back in was like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Like, yeah. This is not Christian. Yeah. Right? That's what happened in Rome. Mm. There were people who were kicked out. Wow. They wow. came back, and now all of a sudden, these Gentiles, the Jewish people come back and like, this ain't Christian. Because they wrapped up, it was wrapped up in their cultural, their cultural understanding norms, yeah. of expression of Christianity. Hmm. So we gotta recognize that these are real issues that are so tied into our culture that we can't separate the two. It's called syncretism. Yeah. Wow. And I think what the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of what Paul is navigating through, he's allowing us to see this tension, see how we're so wrapped up. And he says, the, but the gospel is so much greater. It's so much bigger mm. and it's worthy to fight for. Um, last two questions. I can't believe we're here. Man, you talk about, the book was convicting, by the way, to me. I really had to go back and go, man, where do I stand? Mm -hmm. Am I more of a Christian or do I, am I more culturally into my own self? And so I'm asking this question coming from someone who is convicted by the book. How can we be practical at being advocates? Yeah. What are some practical points? Honestly, that's the whole idea of the book. Hmm. I've really wanted to give handlebars to people who really want to be. Well, you did. Part by the way, because you know, I, you know, I'm an optimist. Let me just go ahead yeah. and say that. And I, I, I try to wish and hope and think that people genuinely want solutions. Yeah. But the problem is, is that we're real good at what I call anti-vision. We're just not good at vision. Hmm. We're real good at saying what's wrong. We're just not good at describing where we're going, what's right, what could it be. Hmm. And so really what I wanted to do is it's like, what are some good handlebars that we can give to people to basically begin to create some categories so we can begin to have conversations? And so that's really how I wrote the book is so that people who genuinely want to live it out, that they can read it, they can begin to get a definition and they can begin to have real conversation, honest conversation yeah. with one another, but they can have the posture that I believe that we see in scripture that calls for us to be advocates. Hey, I want to welcome everybody over to the classroom where uh, Ephraim Smith and I are doing live uh, conversation here. Ephraim, it's great to see you again. It feels like it's been so long since you and I got to talk. I know. I mean, we've been on episodes separately with other co-hosts, but it's, it's, it's great to be back with you. I think we're the original co-hosts of Candid Conversations. Not only the original co-hosts, I mean, I think the idea for this Candid Conversation goes back to years ago with you and I having candid conversations. So uh, I uh, looking forward today and just glad to be back with you. Yeah, we need to come up with something like, you know, uncensored candid conversations. And it's just all the conversations we were having before we were having it like this. <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting that you say that because I part of my reflection, we've been doing the candid conversations now for quite a while, you know, for a couple months. And I really came into this, you know, part of the idea was, was to be in a learning posture. I think I said in the beginning, what I was most looking forward to was having this front row seat to getting to listen. And what I found myself throughout this whole time, uh, it, it really is hard to jump in and have candid conversations 
when you're trying to be in a listening posture. So, um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm really thrilled that we're doing it the way we're doing it and getting to listen. And I've been thinking, you know, Ephraim and I just need to do like a separate show that really is the uncensored conversations where we can, uh, you know, still be in listening mode, but still be having some even deeper candid conversations. So anyway, great to have you on and uh, glad that we're back on this topic. I'd like to start this way if we could today, Ephraim. Um, Dehati Lewis, a friend of both of ours, uh, church planter at Blueprint Church in Atlanta, vice president of the Send Network. Uh, of NAM, and uh, I made notes of just the different words he used going through his talk. Today's topic is justice, biblical justice, and it's interesting that a, a lot of the different words he used, tension, division, reconciliation, and the one that really jumped out at me was fatigue. When he's talking about, for people of color, the fatigue factor of this conversation. And under that fatigue, he talked about anger and hurt and being drained. Um, I have definitely, you know, I get to talk with each of the guests that we have on this show, separate from the show, and I hear those words over and over. The word fatigued, and then there's some optimism that hopefully people are finally listening. Would you just take a couple of minutes in your own experience right now, this idea of fatigue and being drained. You've been in this conversation for a long time. Just give us your perspective at this point on where we've been, where we're at, where you think things are headed, and even speak to your own fatigue factor in that journey, if you would, and where you are now. Sure. No, um, you know, there's a great book out by Edward uh, Galbraith called Reconciliation Blues, and it really deals uh, with the fatigue issue. Um, I, I think you have to you have to look at it um, from from this perspective. I mean, I mean, you know, if you would if you would um, think about uh, any issue that you've been involved in for 30 years. So let's say that you've been involved in ministry to the homeless for 30 years. And all of a sudden, someone comes on staff with you and, uh, or they're in the interview process to come on staff. And the first thing they go, they say is, there's a homeless problem? And, and you and so maybe, you know, five years into your 30 years, if somebody said that, you know, you would just be so gracious. Yes, there's a homeless problem. And this is what it is. And then, you know, 12 years later, somebody would say there's a homeless problem. And you'd say, yes, there is. And you'd be so gracious and so patient and so nice. And then, you know, 25 years in somebody, be like, there's a home. I mean, after a while, there's a part of you, if you're real, that wants to go. How can you not know there's a homeless problem? Where do you live? You've never seen a homeless person with a sign saying, you know, can I have three bucks? I'm so hungry. What can you do? Where are you living? And so I think for people of color, sometimes that's the blues, the fatigue that, that we feel uh, as non-white brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, that um, it, it feels like in some cases it, it, was, it took George Floyd for some people to go, oh man, there's a problem. Maybe I should say something. Maybe, maybe we should have a statement at our church. Maybe we should put together a committee or uh, to focus on this. And for those of us that our calling 
our ministry has been this for so long, go, why did it take George Floyd? You know, and I say, so I, so, but I would want to know on your side, what, what leads to the fatigue, Todd? Yeah, I, I would say from, you know, if, if, let me kind of do a before and an after. Uh, We made the decision in roughly June of this year uh, at Exponential. We're all, we're multiplication activists. We're about seeing the percent of churches that ever reproduce increase to greater than 16%. And we're pretty razor focused on that conversation. And, and prior to June, um, we've, you know, multiple years been trying to work on diversity and be more diverse. Um, have we really taken on an issue of racism or racial reconciliation? It, I, what I would say is it's not been, like you used the analogy of the homeless thing, it's not been our 15-year let's solve that problem kind of thing. So prior to June, it's something that we know is there. It's not something we're waking up thinking about or working on every day. And then with, with the events, not just of George Floyd, but several events in a row in the spring, um, Dave Ferguson and I both, uh, I, I think we, our first fatigue factor wasn't the same kind as your fatigue. Our fatigue factor was after George Floyd, I started getting multiple emails a day from everything from Ancestry.com CEO to Christian CEOs to, you know, all down the line of, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And for Dave and I, it's like, all right, you know, we could say we're sorry as a show of support, but what's it look like to actually engage, to, to, to try to engage? And I think what we realized at that point is where the fatigue is real for you every day and it doesn't go away over 30 years, um, we realized that for the average Anglo pastor, it's it's out of sight, out of mind. You don't have that fatigue factor. But then at the same time, when events like George Floyd come up and you've got a group that want to engage, but they don't know how, and then they start seeing when people do start to engage, they get themselves in trouble when they open their mouth. And all of a sudden it's, I'm going to get in trouble if I don't speak and I'm going to get in trouble if I do speak. That's what caused us to say, let's shift our entire programming this year to really focus on creating safe environments for leaders to have these conversations. Now that's the pre-shift fatigue, which I'm just gonna tell you is not a very hard fatigue. The post-shift fatigue, I'm gonna be just really candid with you and say, I've never been more worn out in ministry in my 20 years in full-time ministry with the conversation and now what, and again, it's not the same fatigue you as a person of color have, but uh, here's what I would say is the fatigue factor for me. The words that get used mean so many different things. The division that happens around words, the arguing over words, the even is there a systemic bias problem or not? Like the amount of energy that has to go into just, trying to even decide, don't even put the word racism in it. Do we have systemic biases? As an engineer background, I I just go into this conversation saying, well, of course, systemic biases are everywhere. Why in the world are we having to fight over whether there's systemic biases or not? And the amount of energy that goes into that, 
I have found myself over the last two months, and I, I'm only talking two months, Ephraim. So I, again, I'm not trying to compare my fatigue to yours, but it's this conversation is exhausting. Like it's exhausting because for me as a as a Anglo, there's there's not a clear endpoint of what winning means, of what the outcome is. And I like to solve problems, conquer the hill and solve the problems. And it's just, there's not a clear outcome of result. And then there's all these words that stir up emotion and we've got more division than we've ever had. So the playing field, the analogy I would use is we're playing a sport, but we don't really know the sport and we don't really know what it means to score and win. What's to, you know, in football, it's a touchdown or a field goal. And we don't really know the rules. And the playing field we're in is just fraught with division and people throwing darts at one another. And I don't mean to be doom and gloom there, but that creates an environment that is just exhausting to even try to engage. So I think it's why the recent Barna data, which is I know discouraging to a lot of people of color, where there was an initial surge of people wanting to engage the conversation and now what we're seeing is a fatigue factor with Anglos after just a couple of months of the conversation. So um, I don't know if that answers your question or not. Oh, no, that, that, yeah, that's great. It, it answers. And I think it's a great segue into um, the Hottie Lewis's uh, video on, on reconciliation and justice, because I wonder if some of the confusion around terms, you know, words, and the disagreements and the debates uh, and, and the fatigue and the frustration have to do with um, a, a chasm, some divides uh, around the issue of justice and reconciliation. I mean, uh, in, in terms of how we define reconciliation and justice. And so I, maybe I can get us into the conversation on that with, with this. I, I tend to think that in the United States of America, there's there's a uh, a significant um, uh, DNA, let's say, uh, the, the the cultural kind of dynamic is individualism. Is you you judge people by their individual merit or their individual behavior, uh, their their individual success, their their individual failures, and the the thought is that um, kind of the the rugged individualism is hey if you keep your nose clean and you do the right thing and you try hard it doesn't mean you're going to have equal success, but there's opportunity for everybody. Uh, and, and, and so for those that really dive into that belief, uh, to, to grasp systemic injustice, systemic sin, systemic racism, uh, it could be a difficult, challenging jump. Or even theologically, practically, if someone goes, well, everybody has to repent for their own sins, Everybody has to take responsibility for, for saying yes to Jesus and accepting Jesus into their heart and take responsibility then for growing as a disciple. Doesn't mean you do it all alone in isolation, but if it is initially, fundamentally, an individual decision, then again, is it hard to get your head around, why would I say sorry, ask forgiveness, 
repent for something that I don't, I don't believe I individually did. So, so I wonder if that's the breakdown because for African-Americans in the country, our, it's, our journey in a lot of ways has been a collective journey. Yeah. We collectively were slaves. We were collectively in Jim Crow there. And, and even today, maybe more than should be, there's a collective narrative about this is the story of black people. This is the story of Hispanics. This is the story of Asians, where it seems like to me, white people moved away from the collective narrative. You were Irish, you were Polish, you were Swedish, but eventually you moved from being Swedish and Polish and Irish to being American. And, and, and so I wonder if that breakdown, I hope I'm not making it too complicated, but this breakdown about how one sees reconciliation and justice is, is formed by on one hand, so-called minority groups that continue to have a collective kind of narrative versus the European immigrant journey in America that started as collective, but then moved to Americanism and kind of being judged by your individual decisions. Yeah, I, I think Ephraim, that's really good. I, I'm gonna share briefly, uh, a conver- I'm gonna tap into a conversation you and I had because it, it was an aha thing for me back before we started Candid Conversations. It was after George Floyd's uh, killing, and you you were expressing some somewhere between fatigue and frustration over uh, why uh, Anglo leaders weren't lamenting more and why we weren't seeing more of a repentant spirit. So it was the lament and repent repentance part, and. Very, again, in the spirit of candid conversations and openness, what I said to you was, I said, I got to tell you what's hard for me as an Anglo, the way we raised our boys, our two kids when they were little, was if one of them hit the other one, we didn't want one of them to just say they were sorry without really understanding what they were sorry for, that the idea that repentance was that there's an understanding that I actually understand what I'm saying I'm sorry for rather than it just being words of the mouth. And what I shared with you was for me, candidly, there has to be a season of listening and learning and understanding where I don't mind saying I'm sorry for something, but I need to understand what it is I'm saying I'm sorry for. And that even creating that environment to get there and your feedback to me was, and appropriately, was, yeah, but as Christians and brothers and sisters, we have to learn to lament together. We have to learn to share in one another's burdens without having to fully understand the other person's burdens. And you used the example with me of Nehemiah, of Nehemiah lamenting and just uh, when, when learning of what had happened in Jerusalem. And... Um, I think the aha moment for me, Ephraim, on on this was when I think about Nehemiah's story, the question I had to ask myself was, okay, Nehemiah was cut to the heart and, you know, this, this lament because he saw what his people had done and what was being done with his people. 
And the question in my mind that wrestled was if if that had happened in some other country, not his people, but to the Syrians or the Canaanites or somebody else, would Nehemiah have been as cut to the heart as he was? Would he have had the weeping spirit? Would he have lamented if it wasn't his own people? And that was the aha for me on this, a little bit of a breakthrough on the, you know, an American versus the color, the different. I need to get to a place as a Christian where I'm, I see not just the American part of it, but I see the family, the mosaic of the family of God, where there's a lamenting when, you know, Ryan Kwan and our family calls it the family win. If one person in the family's hurting, the whole family's hurting kind of thing. And so that spirit of lament when something's not right with someone else, even when you don't understand it, that's what I think we've got to figure out how to tap into is what it, it seems like. So, no, that's, that's, that's good stuff. I, and um, so um, uh, in um, follow up with uh, Dahati Lewis's with the video here, um, justice. So it seems like uh, we're, we're having a hard time in the body of Christ right now, um, defining, getting our heads and hearts around justice and our commitment to it uh, to the degree that, I mean, I know there's, there's, I, man, it seems like over the last four or five months, um, some of my evangelical brothers and sisters are sending me videos where people are saying, hey, if somebody's preaching justice or saying systemic justice or injustice, be careful. This could be cultural Marxism. This could be socialism. Uh, this is pulling the church away from, from the, the Bible. But then I recently uh, saw a very passionate uh, video from Matt Chandler where he's basically saying, hey, we we gave up our inheritance. We the church has the reason why justice has been uh, let's say defined as he would say by dark pagan forces in the culture, or the reason that uh, you know justice has been hijacked is because the church gave it away. The the church uh, has has given up uh, being on the offense. And, and defining what biblical justice is and how that's connected to the mission of the church. Hmm. How would you, if, if we come back to just even common understandings of words and definitions, let's talk a little bit about both justice and then separately reconciliation, since both of those were things Dahadi talked about. Um, how would you, Ephraim, just in simple terms, maybe from, I don't care if it's a secular perspective, we'll talk the Bible definition in a minute, but for the average person in society, what for you is the definition or the elements of justice? Like, how, how would we define justice? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, so, um, I'm so caught up in pushing myself to really focus in on biblical justice that uh, it's going to take me just a second in my head to flush out what I would see as justice in general. And I, 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 I would start by talking about uh, restorative justice, of trying to <clears throat> restore, address, bring healing where uh, there has been 
injustice, where where um, systems have failed individuals or groups. Um, and so when, when I think of justice just in general, it's, it's once a society defines uh, its societal ethics, what is right and what is wrong, what the law is, what it means to live in harmony together. When individuals or groups go against those ethics, those standards for harmony together and harm one another, how do you address those things in a society? To me, justice, a justice system is meant to address when the ethics, the laws that govern and promote harmony and, and a good society are disrupted by wrongdoing, justice should be applied. Mm. See, I, I think if, I, if I'm just right off the top of my head thinking a definition of justice, and I, I like what you, the one you're given there, when I think purely a definition of justice, where my brain immediately goes is, is you know, somewhere where there's a standard that gets applied in a given situation and that there, there is a fair application and outcome of consequences to that standard, that there's an application, you know, where there's a gap between the standard of what should be, and, and whether that's even in the context of a law, a violation of a law or whatever, but there's a standard, and now there's a gap between the application of the standard and reality is how I think of that, you know, that's justice is when we, you know, there's a consequence appropriate to the gap between actual and the standard for what is. Um, I know that I, I didn't mean to complicate that, but just where there's no, a, no, a gap between what's expected, where it quickly starts to get complicated for me, Ephraim, like it, let's take a couple of examples. So, like if, if you and I went and sat in a courtroom, just, you know, minor infraction courtroom where there's a judge and people are coming in for speeding tickets and all their things. And we, we could sit there all day with one judge watching and, you know, we might see that each person was getting fair application of justice or the standard of what was they're getting a fair penalty to what is within the bandwidth, you know, within there. And we would say that's just, they're getting a just sentence. At the same time, we might, we might, you and I look at each other and say, you know, the secret to getting the light end of the sentence is to have an attorney and to have an attorney, you got to have money. And you and I might conclude, wow, it's really weird that a high percentage of the people who have an attorney get the low end of the spectrum, maybe just some community service hours instead of something else. And even those people, it's still just that they're in their specific case, they're getting a penalty within the allowed band. But if we looked at the overall system and said, wow, is it really just that the way you get a light sentence is to have an attorney? Yeah. And then you could even take it further and go, and if you can afford a better attorney, and then you start working your way up to if, if you have a better attorney, if you have the kind of notoriety and celebrity status. I mean, I, I think of the kind of 
justice process for those celebrities that were cheating the system to get their kids into, you know, um, uh, well-known universities and colleges and what they received versus people that are going through the process of the justice system with, with no celebrity and, um, and, and not the quality of, of attorneys as you speak. I mean, it's, so it, it's definitely a great point. And I mean, I think we're at a point where we can admit in the United States of America that, you know, justice, you know, was, was, was defined by, you know, what this, this image of, of a woman with a blindfold saying that justice is blind. Well, I, I think bl- justice can see really well in the United States because at the highest level of justice where, you know, it's so politicized that we're, that we're fighting back and forth going, okay, can we get a more liberal justice system or can we get a more conservative justice system? And so I don't think justice is blind in, in our nation. And it just seems like the challenge for us as Christians is, is what to do within that system where it, it just seems like we see example after example where I'm going to say at the micro level, if you take one person, one case, one set of facts, forget the rest of the world, just one person set of facts. And then you look at the latitude that a judge has within that and you would say, okay, they got a just sentence. And so at the micro level, there might be justice within that set of facts. But then when you look at the systemic part of it and you look at the application across the more complicated part, you might conclude it, th- this idea of it's, it's actually not blind, that, wow, there's not a consistent application of things. And isn't that by itself unjust? So that's the paradox of this is that we can at a micro individual level, you can see justice done, but at the macro level across the consistency of the system, it's unjust. The question is, how do we, how do we maneuver that as Christians when we're kind of, it's not like we can immediately change it. So. Yeah. And I think it's why understanding biblical justice as best we can understand God's justice because there are there are moments we've experienced it uh, not only in the United States but around the world in places like South Africa and other places places that that this is still a reality today where biblical justice um, and and for lack of a better term the the justice systems of this world don't align. Uh, and so there have been moments in the United States of America where the, the change, transformation has happened because biblical justice, God justice, called the justice system of the nation to a higher realization of justice. And so I think of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement. I mean, again, why I think there's in this hour, in this season, I still feel like there's so much that the current resistance movements can learn from that resistance movement, because I still feel like though we have a long ways to go in our nation, we made tremendous progress based on a resistance 
movement that was attempting as best it could to align with biblical justice, with God justice, and it, and it called the justice system of the United States to a higher standard. So go ahead, Efferman, just talk for a couple of minutes about biblical justice. Define it. Give us sort of the, some characteristics. Yeah, I think biblical justice is God's response to sin. It's God's restoration plan for sin. And it points to eternity in God's kingdom where full justice will reign. So I'll say that again. One, biblical justice is God's response to sin. Biblical justice is God's restoration plan in the midst of sin. And biblical justice points us, it's a glimpse, it's a sneak preview of the full realization of justice that we will experience forever in eternity in the kingdom of God. And so, and so what does that practically look like? Well, one, you can say that in terms of a response, well, when Cain killed Abel, God intervenes on the other side of that death because it says that uh, uh, Abel's blood cried to God from the ground. So a, a response um, that, that, uh, to sin is God's interaction with, with Cain. Um, and you can even argue that, man, Cain... We see, we see God's grace show up in God's justice. So God's justice is not just wrath God, and judgment. God, biblical justice includes grace that doesn't show up in earthly justice systems all the time. You, you, you know, there are people that go, when somebody does wrong, what's that old term? Throw the book at them. You know, I, I want them to really feel it. Give them the stiffest sentence you possibly can. And so God's justice seems to include grace. Uh, the second, another example of how uh, biblical justice is God's strategy um, in, in injustice is when we see in the book of Exodus, all the way from God liberating the Hebrew people out of the injustice of slavery to God making a covenant with them and saying, I don't want you as a nation, as a people to operate like Egypt. So one of the ways you're going to be different than Egypt is justice, how you treat the most vulnerable among you and how you, um, you navigate systems, structures of justice, which gets back to what you were saying before, Todd, when you were saying, hey, in the system, if you have a lawyer or if you have a better lawyer, where God says stuff in the Old Testament, like, uh, don't, don't bribe a judge. When you've got a dispute with someone, don't, don't try to, to shift the justice system in your favor because you have more wealth and more notoriety. And then finally, I think that this whole thing of justice pointing to the kingdom of God, pointing to eternity, I look at texts like 
Matthew 25, when Jesus is giving pictures of the kingdom of God, and he tells that story of, of bringing all the nations before him, separating them and saying to those on his right, come and inherit the kingdom of God. Because when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. When I was sick, you tended to me. When I was in prison, you came to see me. And I think that biblical justice is not just about um, what you get if you feel like you're on the side of injustice. Because biblical justice is not just about those being victimized by injustice. It's about giving glory to God and pointing to the kingdom of God. And that's the way we should start separating biblical justice from worldly expressions of justice. Because if our systems of justice if it's just about what happens to the oppressed, but it doesn't give glory to God and it doesn't point to the kingdom of God, then that's not biblical justice. That, and I'm not saying all expressions of worldly justice are bad. There's expressions of worldly justice that don't fully line up with biblical justice that, that are pretty good. Mm. And then there's some that's horrible. Like, you know, justice for Christians in parts of the Middle East would not line up with biblical justice at all. So how do we, how do we take, um, let's, let's use uh, the recent outcome with Breonna Taylor's uh, grand jury. How, how do we apply, if we were just purely trying to apply biblical justice, because after the, the, the announcement, the number one conversation is injustice. That, that this is unjust, the outcome. How would we go about practically? What does it mean for us to try to apply biblical justice to situations like the Breonna Taylor case? What does that mean for us practically? Well, um, when, when, I, when I talked about um, God's justice and I used Cain and Abel as an example, um, what's tricky about that story is we know that it is unjust and wrong and sinful that Cain killed his brother Abel the way he did and for the reasons he did. So we know that's wrong. But then we see uh, some of God's grace. So like God could have said, you killed your brother, I'm going to kill you. But instead, there was a consequence and a punishment for Cain but then when Cain said to God, well, hey, if, if, if I go out here and people know I'm a murderer, they're going to go, that's the first murderer in history right there. Oh, you don't want to live by him. You, man, we should do something to him because he's known for killing people. God said, I'm going to put a mark on you so people won't mess with you like that. I'm like, man, that's, that's gracious of God. So what I would say is whatever side you find yourself on, and I find myself on a side, uh, I think you have to go, how is biblical justice also uh, calling you to grace, calling you to empathy? And so, uh, and so for some, that empathy needs to be applied towards Breonna Taylor, because one of my concerns on one side is, man... 
people are using social media and they don't know Breonna Taylor. They don't live in Kentucky. They know nothing about Louisville, but they're going, well, if she just would have picked boyfriends better, she wouldn't have died. You know, if she wouldn't have been living with a boyfriend, if she just would have made better decisions. And so it's like further criminalize, it's like criminalizing and dehumanizing her to justify your position. That doesn't feel much like much empathy and grace. On the other side, if you use that to demonize all of law enforcement, I, I, I have police officers in my congregation. Uh, you know, the, the chief of police of Sacramento attends my church. For me to, the, the, to not apply any grace, any empathy, any understanding whatsoever to the, the major challenges and anxieties and stresses of what it means to be a law enforcement officer, that could pull me away from biblical justice too. As, as much as it might be hard to admit that. So, so you have to ask the question, how is empathy, how, how does grace impact your understanding, your views, your comments on a situation that is complex and unjust and needs to be fixed and changed? We need to honor the Imago Dei of Breonna Taylor. Uh, we need to have empathy for her mother, for her boyfriend, for her family members, for her community. Um, and, and then there's things on the other side where that would be applied. Um, and, and so even though, uh, the other thing is, you and I always talk about this, Todd. We, we, we've talked about the death of unarmed African-Americans before. And, you know, one of the things that you've always talked about is, you know, sometimes comments come out so fast and then all of a sudden we learn more of what happened and we go, oh, maybe I shouldn't have made that comment because there's more to the story. So even now that the grand jury decision was made, we're still finding out more. Like we're finding out now that there are grand jurors that said the reason we didn't make a decision on certain officers and, and it, because we weren't given that option in the actual proceedings. We were, the options that we were given we're limited. Now that's one anonymous juror. I have a feeling we're going to find out more. And, and I think that it's okay to, to learn of Breonna Taylor's death and your immediate reaction be anger and frustration and grief and lament. When I first heard about her death, I was deeply grieved. I was upset. I was like, not again. Um, and then I found out more and I found out more and I found out more. I'm still grieved. I'm still at uh, the decision last week, grieved my heart. I said that publicly, but I think that it's still important, whatever side you land on to keep letting biblical justice guide you, lead you. And then I think the more you do that, I think you'll, you'll prayerfully in community be able to, move away the, 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 the expressions of justice that are harmful to your soul versus the expressions that actually move us to real action. It just, it, it seems like Ephraim, I, I've given a lot of thought to this the last couple of weeks that, it, you know, if you using Breonna Taylor's case, I think last week we talked a little bit about sort of the macro story and the micro story that it, 
if we ought to be able to line up a line of Christians and say, is it unjust that an unarmed person sleeping in their bed ends up shot dead? Like, it, it can forget all the rest of the facts. Do we do we want to live within a system where an unarmed person at sleep in their bed ends up dead? And I'm talking, forget all the other facts that, of what happened, just the outcome that the person ends up dead. And from that perspective, man, biblical justice, secular justice, whatever justice you want to talk about, man, I sure don't want to live in a world where unarmed people that sleep in their bed end up dead kind of thing. It, it, yeah, yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah, I got a feeling that the most conservative, Bible-believing, evangelical Kentuckian, if someone was banging on their door at two in the morning, if, if, if someone was banging on your house door or yeah. my house door at two in the morning and it wakes me up out of my sleep, I can't tell you for sure that I'd be able to hear, open up, this is the Sacramento police. Right. I would just be startled. I mean, have you ever just woken up in the middle of the night and just were, you, it takes a while to get your bearings and to get, right. and if I owned a gun and I heard banging at my door, my first reaction is not gonna be, the police are at my house, I'm not sure why, my first reaction is gonna be, someone's breaking in my house. Where's my gun? Right. So I, it's it's beyond me why good. What's the amendment again of being able to have a gun? What's that one? Is that the second? Second. second. Yeah. So goods. I don't understand why this. Since we're being candid, Todd, I don't understand why good Second Amendment conservative evangelical Christians wouldn't pause for a moment and go, "I own a gun." Somebody banged on my door real loud at two thirty. My first reaction might be able to get my gun too. Right. And, and here's the thing, I agree with you, and here's, here's why it's so complicated for me. If, if we can agree that at the high level, there's an injustice when an unarmed person asleep in their bed ends up dead. And when I say unjust, I'm talking the biblical, God doesn't want to see that happen kind of thing. But here's where it gets complicated. Let's say you and I were on that grand jury. We're getting to hear the facts, like we Right now, you and I really don't know the facts. I've gone and tried to, like, truly understand the facts the way you would, you know, if you could get the truth. And here we are this many months after it happened and after the hearing, and we still don't know all the facts. But let's say you and I were on the grand jury and we did get to hear the facts. But here's, here's what's so confusing to me, that we can have cases where, the police officers involved, if, and I'm talking facts now, I'm not saying it's the case in this case, but you can have cases where the police officers follow, the, they did what they're supposed to do. In this case, these police officers, there's a warrant that they didn't get, they're given, go execute this warrant. Let's just say you walk through step by step the facts at the detailed level, and you scratch your head and you say, man, we've got a system right now that the police officers could do things roughly right, and we end up with an innocent person dead. And it's, where's the justice in that? It's unjust, but then the danger in it is, if in fact, police officers do things roughly right, but then they're found guilty, that's unjust. 
and what's missing in the whole thing or what are the actual facts and it just seems like a messy situation to me like we we can agree that it's unjust that somebody's dead that shouldn't be dead and then i mean is the answer for christians to work on the system or if you and i were in that grand jury or let's say you're you're on that grand jury what does it mean for you to apply biblical justice as you're sitting on that grand jury like yeah yeah no and and that's why well one my my first response is this is why for the christian we have to say it is possible in this fallen broken world for justice to be served and biblical justice to not be served both of those things can live at the same time yeah that the justice system based on the laws in place can work and biblical justice be denied. And again, I go back to the civil rights movement um, in, in terms of at the time in the South, in the 1940s and 50s, early 60s, when black people tried to vote in the South and they were turned away or given a bunch of unfair hoops to jump through to vote, that wasn't unlawful at the time. It was actually the law. So it, to, when, when African-Americans were going into uh, white-only restaurants, when the restaurant owner was saying, you can't eat here, he was abiding by the law when he told them. Hmm. That's an example of how sometimes just laws of the land don't align with God's justice. So praise God, Dr. Martin Luther King gave us a biblical framework for understanding that white-only lunch counters didn't line up with the justice of God and, and white-only universities didn't line up with the justice of God and jumping through multiple hoops to be able, like to have to go to a jar and have to guess how many jelly beans are in a jar in order to vote. Hmm. He showed that didn't line up with God's justice and it changed the laws. And that's why I know we're getting close to, to running out of time here. That's why for me, I know some people would disagree with me. I don't tend to be a defund the police person. I tend to be a, uh, I'm I want to deal with laws and policies and economics. I, I'm going because the reason why we keep getting discouraged after these verdicts, like the, the decision with Breonna Taylor, is because of laws that are standing on the books that limit what a grand jury can do. And so if, if, if we... If we change laws nationally about body cams, if we change laws about no-knock warrants, if, if, we, if, we, if, if we look at the laws and we have reform and we can do that by applying as best we can as Christians advocacy around biblical justice, uh, acknowledging the imago day upon a person no matter their situation, then I think that's the role we can play in giving a picture of biblical justice because unfortunately, I hate to admit this, but in some of these cases, the decisions with unarmed, the deaths of unarmed African-Americans based on the laws that are currently on the books 
justice took its course. But biblical God justice didn't. Right. And, and, and if the system had built into it a feedback mechanism that would say, acknowledges that that happens and then says, what would have needed to be different about our process, our law, or whatever, that we didn't end up with a bad outcome, even when people are following the rules sort of yes. thing. Yes. Um, but so often, that's not the way the conversation goes, to go back and look at the system part of it, to say, what do we need to change in the system or the law? It becomes more at the micro detailed level of whether one person, who shot who and who did what and whether the protocol was followed, as opposed to looking at the higher level system or rules that were in place and whether it's actually the rules and system that needs to be changed. No doubt. No doubt. All right, Ephraim, this has been a fun conversation. Uh, As we wind down, uh, our exponential roundtables, which continue these candid conversations, we're at uh, over 75 locations around the country. It's an amazing lineup of speakers, including you. Hey, um, look, I'm on there. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, in between Ed Stetzer and Brian Loritz. That's a pretty there you, good... There you go. Hey, just tell us in a few seconds, What do, do you remember your talk? What's your talk about for uh, these roundtables? Yes. Well, you know, um, though uh, we're, we're bringing in uh, issues of reconciliation and biblical justice, like what we're talking about today, we're also still talking about the great collaboration. That um, and and that's why I'm hoping. So in my talk, I'm trying to connect um, the the understanding of the call to the Great Commission, uh, the Great Commandment to love one another, uh, to to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, to this idea of this great collaboration that we need to be reconciled within the body of Christ like never before so that we can have a greater realization of the Great Commission. So I'm kind of trying to uh, bring together the call to discipleship with the call to biblical justice and reconciliation. That's great. And just so everyone knows, uh, along with the roundtables, we've created, uh, it's a resource kit called um, Divided No More. And the resource kit includes over 60 uh, TED-style talks, the type that uh, we saw today with the hottie, uh, the one that Ephraim created. So uh, well over 60 different uh, talks on racial reconciliation. That's included with a registration for Roundtable. Some people are just signing up to get the resource kit, Ephraim, and uh, we're really right in the middle of this, multiplication.org forward slash roundtables for more information. Thanks for being on today, Ephraim. Looking forward to talking to you some more. This fall, Exponential is hosting roundtable events in cities all across America. These half-day gatherings in smaller settings will allow church leaders to prioritize peer-to-peer conversations and receive practical training on how to prepare their church to lead for racial reconciliation. Exponential roundtables will help you continue to pursue church multiplication in these challenging times. Find a roundtable near you this fall by visiting multiplication.org.